us a, a deeper uh, picture of the God that we serve. And so, um, how many of you enjoy watching the reality TV series Survivor? How many of you ever have have connected with it? Like, are you? How many people are a Survivor junkie? Anybody own a Survivor bandana? Anybody wish they own a Survivor bandana? All right, uh, there we go. If you're an Amazon Primer, you know that this month is exciting because all of the seasons came out on Amazon Prime, and so. Uh, Survivor in our house has been one that uh, the first several years that Survivor was on, I was completely, I, I had no idea what this idea of reality TV was. I had no idea how amazing that the idea of putting a bunch of strangers on a deserted island somewhere and not giving them food, how great that that could be to watch. Uh, and so I never, I never really watched it. It happened to be a time in my life where I didn't have the opportunity to watch TV, but uh, we do have a slide with the logo of Survivor on here, so you may you may recognize the first guy there, Jeff, and so uh, he's the host of the show. Uh, how many of you? So here's a test. So Survivor junkies, how many of you know the next two people that we've got on the slide? And if you can name, do we have a slide? Wait, one, two, three, go. So the next slide. How many of you can name? Who can name those two people? All right. Yep. Go ahead. Rob and Sandra, there you go. And so they're great. There's two other survivors we got up here. You may recognize them from season two. Um, so these two guys were, were season two survivor. Um, but uh, you'd have to really go back. I mean, it was they edited us out of a few episodes, but Jacob and I, that's where we met. Um, just kidding, just kidding. Yeah, let's get that off of there as soon as possible. But what are the, what are the three rules in, and that was done by Jacob. I have no ability to do anything technical, so that was all Jacob. He actually did it so well the first time that he sized the face, and we even got the hair of the people so in the picture. So we definitely want you to know that. Yes, um, that was a couple months ago. You know, I put on a few pounds for winter weight. Um, but what are the three rules with, uh, with Survivor? What are you trying to do? Out, who, who said that? Wit, outwit, outplay, and outlast, right? Like, uh, have you ever felt like you're living in the game of Survivor? Have you ever felt like, boy, I just don't know who I can trust. I don't know what's coming next. I don't know if I have an immunity idol. I don't know if I can win the game, but you feel like you're in this game of Survivor, right? Like you watch these people on TV and you get the ability to look at all the behind the scenes that they don't see. We don't know why they're making the decisions they're making. Uh, and so it, it can make it fairly interesting because they don't always know the blind side's coming. But you're like, I know it's coming. I know it's coming. And there's times in our lives where we can feel like we are legitimately in a game of Survivor. I don't know who to trust. I don't know where to turn to. I just I can't figure it out. And, and I want to do good. Like, I want the million dollars at the end, right? We all want, I mean, who wouldn't want a million dollars? But uh, if I had a million dollars, right? This is a popular song. Um, but uh, today, this morning, David writes this psalm. It's believed to be the psalm that David writes uh, when he is uh, wildly and aggressively betrayed uh, by one of his own sons, Absalom. And so uh, it's believed that David wrote this psalm in this time, uh, and I think the text really lends itself to that. There are a couple of people that are like, oh, I don't know, I don't know. Uh, but uh, I, I definitely would disagree with them and just call them dumb. So uh, Psalm chapter 42, uh, if, you, if you have an ESV version Bible and you look at uh, Psalm 42, you notice it's a break. It says book two. Uh, depending on your Bible, it might say book two just above 
uh, Psalm 42. If you're not in Psalm 42, it's in the middle of your Bible, a little bit to the left. Um, and you'll notice the top heading there, the choir master, a miskill, of the sons of Korah. And you're like, wow, that's clear as mud. Uh, and, and so I do want to clear that up. I feel like there's a lot of context. Sorry, I'm getting really excited a little too early. All right. I feel like there's a lot of context in just that that we need to have going into this. And then I'm going to preach fairly fast through a few points uh, today. But worship went fast, so I got a few extra minutes. Ah. And so, um, but uh, first of all, the sons of Korah. And so you can jot this down in your notes. Don't turn there now. But uh, Numbers chapter 16, this crazy thing happens, right? And so um, in uh, the sons of Korah, so these guys in Numbers chapter 16, uh, the, the great-great-grandfathers of the men that are written about in Psalm 42 have this crazy happening. These guys lead a whole group of people to rebel against Moses and Aaron, which is a no-no. If you ever watch uh, scriptures, people that oppose Moses and Aaron, generally their stories don't end really well, um, right? See all of Egypt. And so, um, <laughs> but anyways, these sons of Korah, these guys were people that were uh, sort of the, uh, part of the hierarchy of, of Israel, of the Israelites. And so uh, Moses had them in place in leadership positions, and they decided, we don't like what Moses is doing. Moses is calling us to walk a walk, and, and we, we're just sort of like, Mo, who's, who's in charge? Who's really the boss here? And, and, and are you really in charge of us? Because I didn't vote for you, you know? And so these guys begin to rebel against Moses, and, uh, and God does this thing that's a little bit intense. He takes all 250 of the sons of Korah sort of against Moses. And Moses is like, we've got a fun little test. All right, we're going we're gonna to pray. And if God's for you, then God will make it evident. If God's for me, then you're going to get swallowed up by the earth and burn in hell. And so, uh, so literally, they, they stand opposed to one another. And in this crazy happening, the earth opens up and all 250 of them fall down in, in a burning ring of fire, uh, and, then, it, and the, then the ground closes up over top of them, and it's sort of like, okay, so God is for Moses, right? And so when you read the sons of Korah, these are a couple generations removed from their great-great-grandfathers. They know the story, and from that point forward, their sons and grandsons are living for the Lord, like it, it said, there's this phrase about these guys in Second Chronicles 2019, and, and here's, the, here's the phrase that's said about them, that they were praising the Lord. These guys became worship leaders in Israel, like they're promoted, even though their grandfathers were terrible men. Uh, they were promoted, and they became worship leaders, and it says, with a very loud voice. So like, they're like, I don't want to burn up, so I'm going to sing even louder. And so you see like this new strain of believers uh, sort of take off, and now Kor the sons of Korah, are like, they're good dudes. And so these are the worship leaders. So all that title means is that these guys were the worship leaders. And then a miskill. Uh, this is just sort of a, it's a word that we really don't 100% know what it means. Um, but it seems to show up in every single psalm as a heading for a psalm that taught you a lot of lessons that you needed to know. And so going into the psalm, we know uh, who the singers are that this is written for. Uh, we know that David was the writer, and we know that this is going to teach us something imperative to our faith, because in the title, it just, it says the word miskill. Okay, 
So then we get to the background and this rebellion that happened in David's life and the real background to David writing this psalm because it's a heavy psalm. It's a deep psalm. It's a psalm that I quote a lot of different verses. You'll notice, probably if you've been here for several months, you'll notice that I'll, I'll pick some verses out because they play really well into a lot of the rest of the, the scriptures. But uh, Absalom, uh, it, it said that this guy was, uh, the, he's a very charismatic son of David. And um, what, what happens, it, it, it's a unique situation that happens. David's got several wives, right? Naughty David. And uh, so one son uh, goes ahead and, um, and, and uh, aggressively rapes one of David's other daughters, right? And so Absalom is like, he raises up, and he's like, I've got this. And he kills the other son. son. And so Absalom then flees to a safe place, and David just sort of lets him there. And then he works his way, and you would probably say weasels his way back into the kingdom. And then he's seen, and he's known as this beautiful man. I mean, this is like the Fabio, I can't believe it's not butter, kind of law. He's got long flowing locks. And, and the Bible says that he had such long flowing beautiful locks that he would just shave his head once a year, right? And he'd just be like, oh, they're so big and long. I'm going to, right? I wish I could do that um, and afford to do that, but I can't. Um, and so uh, this guy was a beautiful guy. This guy was somebody that people looked up to. This guy was wicked, and he would sit at the gate, and he would answer people's questions, and people were like, hey, this guy is pretty smart. And he weasels his way back into the kingdom, and he's motivated by a hatred for his father and the way that he treated him, because he thought he had done the right thing. And so David's in a spot, as he begins to weasel his way back in, David's in a spot of being outwitted and outplayed. I mean, this kid works his way to a point where he begins to send messengers throughout the land that he's the boss and that he's taking over the kingdom from his dad. And David's not dead yet. David's still there. David's still ruling. And his son has this huge uprising. And so what David does, because he wants to protect Jerusalem, is he grabs a handful of his followers and he just leaves. And so David is fleeing north. And somewhere in this fleeing is what this psalm is written about. David is, uh, is completely uh, confronted about his, uh, his lack of being a good father. Like he's even got one of his enemies that as they're leaving Jerusalem is throwing sand at David's face and David's followers. He's hurling insults at them as they're leaving. David knows very clearly, I failed as a father, I failed as a leader, God promised me the kingdom, but the kingdom is gone. And he sees all of his failures as a man, as a man of God, as just a good person. And they're just staring him in the face as he's fleeing. And he knows without a shadow of a doubt, I have been outwitted and I've been outplayed. And his son begins to reign in a horrible way. And then the story goes on that David and his son... Uh, their armies meet in battle, and as David's son's army is getting routed, he flees, and Absalom, as he's fleeing, uh, with his long flowing hair, gets stuck in a tree. His hair literally gets tangled in a tree, and it hangs him, and then he gets three spears to the heart, 
And the scripture is so violent that after he gets three spears to the heart, ten men go and they just start stabbing him on the ground. And so David loses his son in this whole thing. Have you ever been there? No, no, none of us have been there, right? None of us have had a son that gets stabbed in the heart by all these spears and all these men. I hope if not, uh, my office is open for prayer uh, later. But David begins to get his bearings. So let's read. I'm going to read through Psalm 42, and I'm just going to ask you to just listen to the heart of David as he writes this psalm. Because he just pours it out. He just pours it out. Psalm 42, verses 1 and following. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you, God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. Well, they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember. If you've got a Bible, underline the beginning of verse 4 there where it says these things I remember. If it's a pew Bible, it's okay. Um, just don't draw pictures in there. But you can underline these things I remember because that's going to set up our sermon. As I pour out my soul, how I would go to the, uh, with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts of songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you in the land of Jordan and of Hermon and Mount Mazir. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and by night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. And while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Uh, just one last caveat. Uh, this was probably written uh, in, in, um, as uh, a continuation goes on in chapter 43. So afterwards, if you want to read chapter 43, it's a continuation, and it has a lot of the same quotes and a lot of the same feelings. I don't have enough time in the day to preach both of them uh, because I got a big mouth. So, uh, and, and we got a lot of ground to cover. But, you know, this, this sort of starts with David just getting his bearings. So David, uh, you know, the way that I read it, David is fleeing north, and, and he's thinking about a whole lot of stuff. And, and how does it start at the beginning in verse 1? As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. How many of you have ever had that on a coffee cup? Right? How many of you have ever had a t-shirt that says, as a deer panteth for the water, so my soul panteth after you? Right? Like this is, nobody raised up a coffee cup, but that would have been awesome. But it is a verse that we're like, oh, that's such a beautiful picture of a deer finding a flowing stream of water. It's taking out of context. Let's look at verse 2. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? When does a deer pant for water? When it doesn't have any. So where's the deer that he's talking about? It's in a dry desert. 
has nothing to drink. And it is just like, I mean, it is like, I need some water. You ever watch a, a Sprite commercial on TV and you see how there's like, there's always like bubbles dripping down the side of it and you're like, oh, I need some of that, right? I just, I'm thirsting for that, right? Uh, David, when he writes, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, God, this deer is thirsty because it can't find anything and it's in a dry and parched land. It doesn't have what it knows that it needs and so it's panting out of need. So as David writes this, you know, some commentary writers say he was maybe sitting on the mount and looking down and he's watching this deer just searching and searching and he's like, that's me. That's me because my kingdom's gone. My kids are a mess. I lost another son. My daughter's a train wreck. I failed as a father. I failed as a king. I failed as this and I failed, failed at that. And I'm in, a, I'm in a parched land. I'm just like that deer, wandering and staggering around, looking and panting for water. Sorry to ruin your coffee cups if you have that written on one. But then he writes this at the end, and I think out of context, I, I, what people are divided on, on what this phrase means, but I think for me it's pretty clear. Uh, but he writes at the end of verse 2, after all this panting and all this thirsting, uh, when shall I come and appear before God? So most people say he's up north and he's looking back to Jerusalem and he's, he's starting to think, man, when can I go back to Jerusalem? I, I want my kingdom back. I want to go to the temple. I want to go before God in the temple. Because again, it was a very, I mean, they would, they would, um, they would go back there. The Jews would go back there several times. Uh, you know, some of them several times, like this was a big deal to worship in the temple, right? Not just the synagogue. And so this was a big deal. So David's looking back and he's like, when can I go back is what most people think. You know what I think? I think David's looking forward to when he dies and is with God. I think he's looking back and this is, this is I'm going to just say, this is my interpretation of it. The way that I think David's thinking after losing his daughter, after losing his son after losing another son and now getting run out of town by his own son, I think he's looking back and saying, God, just kill me now. When can I stand before you? Just give me, get done with all of this. I'm done. I'm done. I've lost. I'm outwitted. I'm outplayed. And then he's in verse 43, he begins to just absolutely pour his heart out. This man is gutted and empty. The sermon gets a little more bright and shiny. I promise you, but we're setting the stage here. He says, my tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Right? We have this tendency, especially in America, with all our comforts and things, to think that David is just like we are. To think like David is just like we are. And, and we're thinking that he's legitimate when he says, they say to me all day long, where is your God? And we put David kind of on a pedestal. You know what I think David's saying right there? They're saying, where's your God? And I'm starting to believe it. They're saying, where's your God? And I'm starting to think, where is my God? Like, where are you? You should show up right now. Like, you should be here. You should be working. I should see your work. And I should be celebrating. 
Where is your God? All these voices are coming at David. And then we get to verse 4, and now things get a little more bright and shiny. Because David went through and he played the game of Survivor, and we know that he wins. So we know already, and, and if, uh, you know, uh, game changer, uh, David wins in the end. He gets his kingdom back. He has earthly things restored. And then he also, we know that he's, uh, we're going to see him one day in heaven. Verse 4, he says this, these things I remember. So as David is gutted and he's pouring his whole heart out before God, he's like, but while I do that, I got some things that I remember when I'm doing that. And so if you're caught in a game of survivor and you are trying to outwit and outplay and outlast the whole world around you, these things you need to remember from David, not from me. All right. I'm just the, I'm just the voice here. Here's what he says. These things I remember when I pour out my soul in verse four. Number one, things that David remembers. I'm going to give you six if I can do this quickly. Uh, otherwise, I will shorten it. Uh, number one, David conditioned himself to remember the good old days. Number one, here's one thing David remembers. He remembers to condition himself to remember the good old days. That's not the old running around, you know, with your fast truck, with your loud pipes, with, you know, a cigarette hanging out of your mouth, drinking, you know, whatever. That's not what he's talking about. That's not what I'm talking about when I say good old days. Here's what he says, verse 4. How I would go out with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. He's like, one of the good old days that I remember is when I was singing and praising and dancing before the Lord, and I was with people that wanted to do the same. Do you have those people? Is that one of your good old days that you can look forward to a time of meeting together with believers and remembering what it's like to worship God. He's not remembering all the wives and concubines. That's not what he's remembering as he's fleeing. He's not remembering all the money. He definitely ain't remembering the in-laws, right? He's, he's fleeing, and he's running away, and he's not thinking about any of the comforts of the kingdom. He's thinking about the joy that is rooted in worshiping with other believers. That's his joy. He's like, I got to get back there. I've got to do that. I'm remembering, I'm conditioning myself to remember the good old days. See, if we dwell in the present darkness, we tend to rewrite our stories of the past. If we dwell on our current darkness, we allow it to rewrite the past. Think about when you get caught in a routine in marriage, and in parenting, and in work, and in just day-to-day -day paying bills, and paying taxes. And man, we just get caught, and we begin to rewrite. Man, it's really dark. And then you turn on the news, and you're like, whew. And then you wake up and realize Trump's our president. Just kidding. Totally joking. That was joking. I'm just, that's a complete joke there. Um, and so, but, but like, you just look at all the world affairs going on, and it's, man, it's easy to get bogged down. But isn't it good to be in the house of the Lord and worship? And that's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm not even near Jerusalem anymore. But man, I want to be. I want to be. 
Number two, David remembered that God sets the boundaries of his season. Verses five and six. David's going to do some soul talking, right? He's going to just, he's going to, he's looking at himself. He's like, something's wrong in me. I got to fix it. Why are you cast down, O my soul, you wicked, wicked soul, right? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He looks at all of the darkness. He looks at his kingdom gone. He looks at his wives gone. He hears the stories about his son that is just destroying the kingdom before him. He can't even go to church anymore. And he says, I shall again praise him. I shall again praise him. There are boundaries on my season, and I don't need to hold the boundaries. I don't know, need to know the boundaries. I need to know Jesus in the midst of this, and I just need to move forward because there are boundaries on the season, and a loving God holds them, and I will praise him again. Does David know he's going to be in his kingdom again? No. Does David know that he's going to have money when he goes back? No. Does David, is David talking about his temporal going to worship this time? No. He's like, I'll either be in heaven with God worshiping, or I'm going to be here on this mountaintop away from everything that I know and everything I want to be. I'm going to worship here. I'm going to worship while I walk away. And I'm going to worship him, hopefully, in the temple on earth again. There is a boundary on every one of your seasons. The, you know, some of you, you're like, Ryan, you're an old fart. Some of you are like, Ryan, you're kind of young to be a pastor, right? Uh, so I'm kind of in the sweet spot right now. Um, but what I've known in the last 20-ish years of walking with Jesus is that there are different seasons. Those of you that are some of you with the little tots, this is only a season. Enjoy it, you, right? You take a kid, you drop him off in college, you're like, I am a whore. You're in David. You're singing. The, you're reading this psalm. You're like, oh, my goodness. That kid's going to train wreck, right? Like, you're like, I was a terrible parent. You're repent. Like, I remember dropping Chris off at Word of Life Bible Institute, and I drop him off, and, and, and I'm like, well, let's go get you some food. So I bought him, like, $7,000 worth of food, and it's all microwavable, right? Because who trusts that kid with an oven? And, and I'm just like, man, I'm sorry for this, and I'm sorry for that. I should have taught you this. I should have taught you that. Let's walk, talk about the birds and the bees. You know, let's do all these different things, you know, that we want to. It's like I got to impart wisdom because I'm a screw-up. Everything's a season. You get the tots, then they start walking. You're like, put that kid on a leash, and, and then the kid starts talking, and you're like, put a muzzle on that kid, and then they're a teenager, and you're like, lock them in a box. Right? And then you're like, well, let them out when they're 20. Oh, put them back in there for another couple years. Right? Like, everything is a season. Even your darkness is a season. Because if you die in the season, you'll be praising God in heaven. You won't even be caring about what you left behind. David remembered that God sets the boundaries. Number three, David remembered that the Father uh, is his perfect supply. So this gets a little poetic. I'll, I'll give it that. Here's what he says in verse 7. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone out. 
So here's what Robert Lee, not Robert E. Lee, but Robert Lee wrote about this in his commentary. The deep need of man's need calls to the deep supply of, or deep need of God's fullness. So let me, let me start that over again. The deep need of man's deep calls to the deep need of God's fullness. If you're confused, I'll keep reading. The deep of God's fullness calls to the deep of man's need. So what that means is that God is the, the fullness of God is the fill for the lack in you and I. The fullness of God is the exact perfect fit for the need that you have. And God is calling you to allow him to fill your need. And you and your spot should be at a point where David's at like he's like, man, I can't watch, you know, I don't have cable out in the desert. You know, oh, man, you know, I'd sure like to drink some of that good wine that, that I had and the good food. He wasn't talking about food. He wasn't talking about the NFL. He wasn't any, none of that. None of that mattered in his darkness. But he knew his need, and he writes down, these, uh, these waves are over me. As the waves are over top of me, and if you've ever been in a wave pool, you know what I'm talking about. If you've ever been in a wave pool, you're like, oh, this is fun. You know, like everything kind of starts out slow, and you're like, oh, this is fun. And then about two minutes into it, like it's on a four-minute cycle, about two minutes into it, you're like, mm, you know, <laughs> I should have had that burrito with lunch. And then you're about three and a half minutes, and you're like, help me! And then you swallow some water, and you're like, what is going on? Right? I can't, I can't breathe, right? And, and, and David's like, all right, I can't breathe, Lord. But in this moment, you're my fullness. I got an empty cup. Fill me, Lord. It took a season like this for David to realize this truth that now we can read about and be comforted by that God is your only fill. He's all, all that he is. David remembered that the Father is his perfect, perfect supply. Molly and I have a friend uh, who a year ago today was writing about on Facebook that she had, uh, she had breast cancer and that she was battling. Um, and she had written about how she was delivered from that and how God worked in her life through that. And, uh, and then, was it Thursday or Friday, Molly and I get a message, or we, we noticed on Facebook, um, that she went in for her checkup, and she, you know she's been cancer-free for a year now. And she went in for a checkup, and on her brain stem, there's a mass of... Uh, brainstem, there, there's a mass of cancer attached to her brainstem. And so they were going to rush her in the next morning. Anytime the doctor tells you they're going to rush you in the next morning for something, you know it's pretty big. And then as they got closer to it, they're like, actually, we need a couple days to plan. And so this morning at 8 o'clock, she went in for, um, for surgery on that. You think the waves are overwhelming to her, and she's got four kids, and she's got a husband. All her four kids are younger than Micah. And... Uh, you think the waves are overwhelming her? But in that moment, when the waves are too much, the Lord is our perfect supply. He is our sustaining perfect supply. Number four, David remembers the power of praise. Number four, David remembers the power of praise. Um, verse eight 
By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and by night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. And so this is uh, a situation where uh, uh, David is being a little poetic. He's a little bit fluffy here. He's saying, all right, there's the day. There's the moments where I can see God's activity. I can feel God's presence. I can feel the warm fuzzies. I can lift my hands and praise, and it's great, and I can see God's love, and man, it's great. It's great when it's light out. We always, light is always good in scripture, right? Except for light people because they'll float to heaven soon, right? That's why I got to just keep a little bit there. Um, and so, uh, so David is saying, by, by day, man, I see your steadfast love. It's great. Like you're just continually overflowing grace and love and mercy in my life. It's awesome. But then there's the night. And in the season, here's what David remembers. He remembers the power of praise. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I'm not going to do show of hands, but how many of you have ever been in a point where you are so pressed that you're driving down the road and you're like, oh, Jesus, you're so good, and you're singing, like a worship song comes on, and you're like, tear, 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 flood, 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 right? And you're just singing, and, and you're meeting with God, and it is like you're praising, but you're praying, and you know something's happening, Jesusified in your, in your car, right? Like just an incredible moment with you and the Lord if you haven't. Just flip on one and do it. Just, just fake it till you make it. No, just kidding. But there are moments where you are in that pressure season and you're like, I'm singing and this stuff's coming out of my eyes. You know, I got something and you're at a stoplight and you're like, and you know something amazing's happening. All night long, David is praising God and it's like prayer. As he's saying, God, you're good. I'll tell you one point of application of this one. If you feel like you're waking up in the middle of the night, you say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And you listen to the voice of God. God loves to speak to his people. And sometimes the only time you're quiet enough with your stupid head and my stupid head to listen is in the middle of the night in the middle of your sleep. And God shakes you awake and you're like, what was that? Right? If you're me, then you, then you listen to the mice in the attic and you're like... I'm awake, and you listen to your bulldog snore, and you're like, I'm up, Lord, and then God speaks in the quietness with Hamilton in the background, you know, bulldog snore in the background, but in those moments, God gets a hold of you. This is prayer. This is prayer, and then we go to verse 9 and 10. We'll just put this all under praise. He just pours out. He says, I say to God, my rock, like he, he's affirming, God, you're my rock. Why have you forgotten me? Now he's real. This is prayer now. As he's praising, this is prayer. It's okay to talk to God and ask questions. Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Before, he was blaming on everybody else. Now he's like, ooh, I'm, I'm really, I'm getting in the groove of believing that you're not even with me and that this thing isn't real. This is prayer. This is prayer. And we know that God hears every prayer that you utter, every prayer that you sing, every prayer that you grunt, the moments when you can't pray, and you're kneeling down and you're weeping, and nothing is coming out verbally, but God is hearing your heart. 
That is prayer. That is what the people of God have done throughout the ages, and that should mimic us. That should mimic our walk with Him. God is so pleased to us that He is up in heaven, and it's almost like He has for each one of us some headphones, and He's just listening for you to call to Him. God allowed David to enter the season to deepen David's faith and to deepen David's relationship with God. And God is fully listening to you as he's listening to everybody else and he is waiting for his children to call on him so that he can rush in air support for you and he can do some some prayer dive bombing in your life, carpet bombing. Verse six, or I'm sorry, number six, last one. David reminded himself that God was his salvation. So this is the culmination of 42, right? And this is why they they ended here, because A, it was getting long, and B, um, is kind of the culmination of his first thought here. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you at turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my my God. David reminded himself of his salvation. He self-talks again. He's like, the things coming out of me, they ain't of you, God. The things I'm believing, they're not of you. And I need to just begin to call those things out. And I need to remember, God, you are my salvation. You're my way out of this. You're my roadmap. You are my God, and I am your son. Let's walk this out. And then he claims, God, you are my salvation. I'm going to outlast this because of his grace. You will outlast everything because of your grace. You know, those people in the show Survivor... They're halfway through. They're not sure if they're going to win. Some of them are cocky, and some of them are arrogant, and then they get voted off. You're like, oh, I didn't see that coming. You know, it's kind of fun to watch them get voted off. You entered this game, and you know the end. It ends with eternity with God forever. For those that have trusted in Jesus Christ, it's eternity with God forever. You will outlast. Amen, hallelujah. And if it stabs you in the heart halfway through and you don't physically make it, you won't care because you're with God worshiping in heaven for eternity, seeing God face to face. How amazing is that? The gospel is real simple. As the ushers make their way forward, they're gonna, you guys just go ahead and start uh, handing out the juice and the bread. We're going to end with communion today. A little bit different than normal. Uh, we're going to end with communion today. Just go ahead and hand them both out at the same time and hold on to those together. But uh, everybody else, uh, I know we've got handsome ushers, but listen here. Um, the gospel. Gospel is simple. God made you and this word world perfect. That's the first beginning of the gospel is understand that God made everything perfect. And in that, God gave us this thing called free will. And in the free will that God gave us, we chose to rebel against God. Adam and Eve did it. We echo that. We chose to sin. Your sin has consequences of hell for eternity. It's just the reality of it. God is, it's not that your sin is overwhelming, um, but it's that God's holiness is so bright that sin can't enter God's presence. And so there's this chasm between us and God. And this is the basic of understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ, why he came, why we walk with him. 
Because there was a chasm that your works and my works, our good deeds, can't, we will never see God unless it's in judgment. And so what God did is he looked on you and he looked on me and he wanted to bridge the chasm. And so what he did is he sent his son Jesus to pay our sin fine. The fine that we all accumulated because of our sin, Jesus paid for it fully on the cross. And by believing that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, by believing that that gift was for you and I, that we can be set free, he wipes the slate clean. He changes your, your and my eternal destiny uh, for, for, forever. He invited us to be his children. And so Jesus... Here's what scripture says about it. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I didn't get juice or bread, guys. I didn't get juice or bread. Uh, um, so, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 says this. You're a beast, man. Thanks. All right. In a good way. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, don't take your stuff yet. I want to talk about this. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread, and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there's two elements to this, right? There's the body that Jesus freely gave up for you and for me. His body was the price. His blood was the cost of your redemption. And the early disciples, whenever they would gather, they might eat a meal together, they might look at the scriptures but they would always, always, always do communion because you and I are forgetful that God is our salvation. You and I think it's our works. Even those of you that have walked with the Lord for a long time, we forget daily. We are forgetful. We are leaky vessels when it comes to the way that Christ has set us free. We're, we forget the weightiness of what we're doing. Scripture says before we take this that we actually take a time and we remember and we think about and, and we analyze where we're at with the Lord, that when we take this together, this is a weighty thing because it cost his body and it cost his blood to send you and I to heaven for eternity. The glory of it is he sent us to heaven for eternity because of the gift. So let's partake together. Um, one of the neat things that happened, um, we did this at the, actually at the Olympic Training Center in Lake Placid. Um, we just gathered around and I said, hey, let's just read the scriptures and, uh, and let's see what the Bible says about communion and, uh, and let's talk about how you guys have done that in the past in all different denominational backgrounds. And one of the cool denominations are one of the cooler churches and uh, cooler girls shared about, yeah, we're, we're not hip and trendy. Um, but uh, they talked about that after they're done with communion, what her church does is that when they're 
when they want to remember the communion, uh, they're done with these little cheesy little cups that we buy. We do not wash them. They're new every time. Uh, it's just a benefit of coming to Serenac Lake Baptist Church. They take the cup and they set it on the ground and they crush the cup because their sin is broken, their chains are broken, and they've been set free. So if, I don't have shoes on. If you have shoes on, set your cup on the floor and crush it. I know, they splinter. <laughs> the gospel is good news. You have been set free. All right, you may go in peace. All right. Thank you for the cross that you have carried. 